O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, wonderful to see you uh, this morning. My name is Huey, if we haven't met before. And uh, welcome to everyone uh, who's physically here uh, this morning. Uh, but uh, I'm well aware that uh, because, um, you know, case numbers arise, case numbers arising and, and so forth, uh, many of us are not here uh, and are joining us on Zoom. Uh, and especially um, our uh, dear St. Thomas uh, brothers and sisters, uh, many of them are joining on Zoom this morning. Uh, it's wonderful to have you with us like this. Um, it's unfortunate that it's COVID that has kind of thrust us together, but uh, I was kind of thinking it, it's kind of nice that we're meeting um, as two congregations who are joining as one this morning. Uh, well, it'll be great if uh, you can have Psalm 95 open in front of you, and we're going to uh, be having a look at that psalm closely this morning. Uh, but uh, I'm going to uh, lead us in prayer, asking for God's help. Um, and uh, in these anxious times, I think we need God's help uh, more than ever. So uh, let me lead us in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great privilege and joy of gathering as your people this morning. And we pray that during these uh, anxious times that uh, you would give us your peace, uh, the peace that comes from knowing you. And we pray that this peace might guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, Father, as we turn to your word now, uh, we ask for your help. Uh, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher this morning and uh, give us soft hearts that are willing to listen and obey the things that you say. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, what is something important that you need to be reminded of daily? What is something important that you need to be reminded of daily? Uh, we all have important daily reminders in our lives, don't we? Uh, perhaps it's the alarm clock that goes off every morning at 6 a.m., uh, reminding us that we need to get to work on time. Uh, perhaps it's the daily notifications we get on our computers, reminding us of important events like birthdays and anniversaries and special occasions. Uh, perhaps it's uh, this pill box 
Hands uh, up if you know what this is. Um, if you know what that is, you're probably old. Um, and you don't, if you don't know what that is, you're probably not old. But uh, it's a daily reminder to take your pills. Uh, I once knew a, a dear old lady who had her doctor call her every single day um, to remind her to take her medication. Uh, she was very forgetful, and so she needed a daily reminder uh, to take her medication, which was actually important in preserving her life. If she didn't take the medication, she could end up in serious trouble. What is something important that you need to be daily reminded of? Well, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 95, and uh, I want to suggest that this particular psalm in the Old Testament is an important daily reminder of how to read the Bible. An important daily reminder of how to read the Bible. In fact, this psalm is the psalm that Thomas Cranmer inserted into the Anglican prayer book to be read every day to the congregation. Uh, you know, there was a time uh, when Anglicans used to go to church every single day. And so this psalm is the psalm that was read out to them before the other Bible readings were read. This really is the Anglican psalm. It's the everyday psalm that Anglicans were to take to heart every day of their lives just before they heard God's voice in the Bible readings, to remind them of the importance of reading the Bible the right way. For we ought to be reading the Bible every day, shouldn't we? But even more important than reading the Bible every day is how we read the Bible. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to read the Bible. The right way will lead to life. The wrong way will lead to death. And as we will see, the right way to read the Bible has nothing to do with your intellectual ability or knowing the right techniques or keeping up with the latest theological fads, but it has everything to do with your heart and my heart. Well, friends, uh, if we have a look at the, the psalm itself, you can see there that it begins with an invitation to joyfully praise God. In verse 1, it says, let us sing and let us make a joyful noise. In verse 2, it says, let us give thanks and let us sing songs of praise. Notice that this is something that we do in community. It's let us rather than let I. It's a call for the whole people of God to join in the praise of God. Um, I might be preaching to the converted here, but, you know, it's only the secular individualism of our day which has infected some Christians to think that they can be saved by God without participating in the people of God. Now, people ask questions like, do I need to go to church in order to be saved? But that's actually a, a nonsense question in the Scriptures. For to be saved means that you and I are part of the people of God, you see. And we are called to participate in the people of God. Let us give thanks. 
And let us give praise. Now, further, notice the joy that is so evident here. For Christianity is a religion of joy and singing and music. Not all religions are like this, are they? The Taliban, for example, in Afghanistan is banning music even as I speak. Other religions are religions of quiet contemplation. Now, there may be a place for uh, that kind of expression of Christianity, but Christianity is in the end a religion of singing and of music and of joy and thanksgiving to our God. But why should God's people joyfully praise God in this way? Uh, well, you can see the reason there in verse 3, can't you? Now, have a look at Psalm 95, verse 3. It's because God is a great God and a great King above all the gods. Uh, you know, in the ancient world, um, people had many small g gods that they believed had a certain authority over different parts of life. And so, if you wanted your crops to do well in a certain year, then you would go to the God of prosperity and worship him. Or if you wanted a child this year, you would go to the God of fertility and worship him. Or if you wanted to gain knowledge and wisdom in your life, you would go to the God of wisdom and knowledge and worship him. It's no different in our modern world, is it? We do this with our functional gods. If we want prosperity, we go and worship the God of money. If we want good health, we go and worship the God of medicine. If we want knowledge and wisdom, then we go and worship the God called Wikipedia. What a tiring life to go from this God to that God, putting our hope in this God and putting our hope in that God to ultimately bring us prosperity and security and meaning in life. But what God says in this psalm is that He's the God of gods and the King of kings. It's not these little g-gods that have ultimate authority over various aspects of our lives. Rather, God has authority over everything and everyone because He created all things, you see. In verse 4, the depths of the earth are in his hand, and the heights of the mountains are his also. In verse 5, the sea belongs to him, as well as the dry land, because he created it all. You see, there is not an inch of this world, and not an inch of your lives and my life, that is outside the authority and control and governance of God. What a great comfort especially in these anxious times. But it's not simply knowing God as the Creator that leads to joyful praise. After all, knowing God as the powerful Creator of the world can just as well be a fearful thing, don't you think? But notice it's knowing that God is good to us and has saved us and is on our side. This is the thing that leads to praise. For that is why the psalmist mentions mountains and uh, the sea and the dry ground here. What would the Israelite have thought of when they heard mention of mountains and sea and dry ground, do you think? 
Well, they would have been reminded of the Exodus, don't you think? Where they were saved from slavery in Egypt as God parted the sea, used his power and authority to split the sea in half and to make dry ground appear and to lead Israel to the, to the mountain, to Mount Sinai, where they became his people. You see, that's why God in verse 1 is described as the rock of our salvation. Now, the rock is a standard image in the Bible that represents security and safety and stability in life. Now, I don't know whether you've been to a part of the world where there is the possibility of earthquakes and tsunamis, uh, but I'm told that in these parts of the world there are frequently warning signs uh, such as the one uh, appearing on your screen, uh, to warn people that if there is an earthquake, well, you need to climb that rocky mountain and get to the top, for that is the only place of safety and security and stability when the tsunami hits. Now, that's the kind of picture that the psalmist is painting here. You see, this is the reason why Israel was to praise God with song and musical instruments and thanksgiving. It's because God had saved them from slavery in Egypt and had led them into his very presence to be his people. And if that is the case with Israel, then how much more reason is there for us, for you and me, who have been saved from sin and Satan and death by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. How much more reason is there for us to praise and, and thankfully and joyfully worship Him? Friends, how do you read the Bible? Especially when uh, you are in the congregation of God's people. Uh, is the Bible reading and, and sermon and, and times where we share the Word a dry and arid and boring experience for you? Is it a time to take a toilet break or to go outside and do other things that seem more important? Now, knowing God truly and knowing God in His Word and being in His presence because we are saved by Him is actually a joyful experience, isn't it? It's cause for great joy and singing and thanksgiving to the one who is God of gods and King of kings. Well, friends, in the next part of the psalm, there is another invitation, which is slightly different to the first invitation. Now, the first invitation was an invitation to, uh, to come and join in something. But the second invitation is an invitation to come in to come in, perhaps, to the temple and to worship God in humble reverence. Uh, you can see this in the posture that is called for in uh, the next part of this psalm. In verse 6, there is a call to bow down before God. Uh, in the same verse, there is a call to kneel before God. They are both postures of going low in humility, and reverence and fear of God, isn't it? Now, it's a bit hard to understand how you can hold together a joyful praise of God and a humble 
reverence and fear of God on the other hand, isn't it? But it's not something that is uncommon in our experience of relationships. Uh, you know, a few years ago, my, my little daughter, Naomi, uh, was delighted when my wife and I allowed her to watch uh, the first episode of Harry Potter uh, with us. Uh, she literally danced up and down in excitement, giving praise to her parents uh, as we uh, told her that she could watch the movie. But uh, when we were watching the movie and we got to the, you know, the really dark and scary bits of the movie, if, you, if you've seen it, you, you'll know what I'm talking about. Is that even in the first episode? I'm not, I'm not even sure. It is? Okay. Um, when we got to the dark and scary parts of the movie, uh, she snuggled up in my arms, you see, revering these powerful muscles of, of her dad, which is able to protect her from these things. You see, that's what worship of God ought to be like. Joyful praise, humble reverence and fear. But why are God's people to worship in humble reverence? Well, again, uh, you can see there that the reason has something to do with God being the creator. But it's not about God's creation of everything in general. Rather, it's about God's creation of Israel as his people. And that's why in verse 6, God is described as our maker, not the maker. Did you notice that? This is the one who has made us as a people. Again, you see the same idea in verse 7, which is the covenant that God entered into with his people in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai. It's the covenant where God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your shepherd and you will be my sheep who listen to me as I take you to the promised land. That's why Israel was to worship God in humble reverence, you see. It's because this God of gods and King of kings who owns and rules the world had saved them and made them his people and promised to take them into the promised land where they would find rest from their enemies. But here's the thing, friends. Notice that simply praising God enthusiastically or adopting a physical posture such as kneeling before God is not enough. Yeah, you can come to church and sing as enthusiastically as you like, with great enthusiasm and gusto. Or you can come to church and kneel before God, uh, which used to be the common practice in churches. That's why uh, if you have a look in the pews, you have a little uh, kneeler there that folds out because people came to church to kneel before God. You can do all these things, and they're not necessarily bad things to do, but you can do all these things and yet get the worship of God so horribly wrong. That's why the second part of this psalm is actually a sober warning for God's people. This is really the point of the psalm, because this psalm is a warning against the false worship of God 
that is simply external and not a matter of the heart. For the true worship of God is not simply about enthusiastically singing praises to God or adopting certain postures before God, but it is about listening and obeying the Word of God in our lives, you see. For it, it is our obedience to, God, to God's Word that really tells us what we think of God Himself. For you cannot really praise Him. You cannot really be humble and revere Him if you don't listen to God's Word. You can't claim to truly worship God, but then simply ignore the things He says and continue to do the things that we wanted to do anyway in our lives. You can see there that the warning the psalmist gives is really a history lesson. Now, he refers there to the first generation of Israel who were rescued from slavery in Egypt in the, the time of the Exodus. You know, think about it, friends. These were the people who saw the powerful, staggeringly powerful salvation of God. They were the ones who witnessed the plagues that God sent to defeat the gods and enemies in Israel, uh, in Egypt. They were the ones who saw the Red Sea being parted so that they could be saved through the waters, so that they could come out of slavery to serve Him. You know, they were the people who, after seeing their salvation, enthusiastically sang to God, you remember, on the other side of the Red Sea. They were the ones who prostrated themselves in humble reverence to this God who had just demonstrated His frightening power. But here's the great tragedy. You can see there in verse 8 that the psalmist refers to an incident that happened in the wilderness as the people of Israel were being led to the promised land. Uh, you can read about this in Exodus 17 uh, in your own time. But uh, you might remember there that the people of Israel couldn't find water. And so what did they do? Well, they began to grumble. And they began to quarrel against Moses. It's not that asking for water was a wrong thing to do. But it's that something changed in their hearts that day. Rather than trusting that God would provide for them, well, they hardened their hearts against him, not believing that this God who had so powerfully and miraculously rescued them could actually provide for them in the wilderness. And so they tested God by demanding things on their own terms rather than taking God at his word. Now, that's why Moses named the place Massa, which means testing and Meribah, which means quarrel. And what was God's response? Well, you can see it there in verse 10, can't you? It says he loathed that generation for 40 years. This isn't God hating the sin and loving the sinner, is it? What God is talking about here is loathing those who turn away from him again and again in unbelief by hardening their hearts. Further, in verse 11, God swears that they will not 
enter his rest. They will not enter the promised land. You will know that this generation of Israel were the ones who were barred from entering the promised land, except for two, uh, Caleb and Joshua, who trusted God with all their hearts. All the rest fell in the wilderness. If you dig up the sand, you will find their bones. Now, many people don't like this kind of warning. They don't like talk of God loathing people. They don't like talk of God swearing in judgment. And so many uh, people who claim to be Christians actually just get rid of this second part of Psalm 95. Did you know that? Uh, in some prayer books uh, produced by liberal Christians, uh, they only have the first part of the psalm, which is all about the joy and uh, the, the reverence of God, but they get rid of this part of the psalm. You know, we like the enthusiasm and the reverence, but we just don't like the warning and the judgment according to those who do such things. You know, there is a great irony in cutting out and not listening to the parts of the Bible where God is speaking about the importance of listening to Him, don't you think? But it's also a great misunderstanding of how warnings function in the Bible. For warnings are not just unpleasant things that we are at liberty to just cut out. Rather, they are there for our good. That's a bit like the warning signs you get before coming to a speed camera. Has anyone got a speeding ticket before? Just, um, hey, very honest, thank you. Um, did you know that in every other state in Australia, you don't actually get any warning signs before the speed camera? Did you notice that? If you happen to be speeding and they catch you, then it's too late. You'll be hit with a whopping big fine, or you will lose your license. But New South Wales is much more loving, you see. For you will know that before the speed camera, there is warning after warning after warning about the speed camera that is ahead of you. Why? Well, it's because they don't actually want to fine you, isn't it? They want you to slow down and avoid the disaster of getting a fine or, worse still, losing your life through speeding. That's what warnings in the Bible are there for. It's a loving reminder to take the appropriate course of action because the God of the Bible wants you to avoid that disaster, you see. Now, what does all this mean for us? Well, here's the thing. The people of Israel who came out of Egypt heard God's warning not to harden their hearts against God and His Word. But what did they do? Well, they hardened their hearts and uh, acted in unbelief and therefore missed out on the promised land. But in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, we are actually told that this psalm, Psalm 95, was written by King David. In other words, 
It would have been written by David during a time when the people of Israel were already in the promised land. So what does it mean for David to warn the people of his generation not to harden their hearts lest they miss out on the promised land that God uh, had, had in store? Well, it must mean that David was thinking not of the physical promised land of Israel, but another promised land, a spiritual promised land and the eternal rest of God that the physical land of Israel was simply a pale shadow. And it's because of this promised land, this eternal rest of God, this heaven, this kingdom of God, if you like, is still available to us. But in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews says that God is saying the same thing that he said in Psalm 95 and issuing the same warning that Moses and David did in the Old Testament. For in the past, God spoke through Moses. In the past, God spoke through David. In the past, God spoke through the prophets. But the writer of Hebrews says that in these last days that we are living in, God speaks to us through His Son. And what God says through His Son is exactly the same message as he spoke to previous generations, that is, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not miss out on the promised land and eternal rest of God. But the word today there is actually a very important word. It means that every day that you and I hear the voice of God as we open up the Bible, is today when God is speaking to you and me. Well, you see, God's word in the Bible is a contemporary word to us. It's not a dead word from the past. That's what some people say, isn't it? You know, the, the things re- written in the Bible, uh, they were written thousands of years ago and it was relevant for back then, but it has no relevance for you now, so we can just ignore it. That is to misunderstand the very nature of the Word of God. For God's Word is a contemporary Word for now, for today. It is a living and active Word because our God is living and active. And so today, if you hear His Word, that is the time not to harden your hearts against God, but to trust what God says and to do what God says and not walk headlong into disaster by missing out on the eternal promised land and rest of God. One day, you and I will be put in a coffin and we'll be lowered to the ground. That day will no longer be today. For your opportunity to respond rightly to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the God of gods and the King of kings and the Lord of lords, will be gone. And if you and I have hardened our hearts towards him, then we will have nothing to look forward to but the eternal wrath and anger of the God in his frightening power.
as of today, the 9th of January 2022, is the time to respond to God's word. Tomorrow, when you read God's word, is the right time to respond to God's word. If God is gracious, and you will get it tomorrow. Whenever you and I hear God's word, is the time to respond with faith and repentance and obedience to Him. It is not the time to rest on yesterday's obedience. How many Christian people these days say, you know, back in the day, I was a youth group leader, you know, I did all these things to obey God. Simply resting on yesterday's obedience rather than the here and now. It is not the time to procrastinate and think that, you know, we can respond to God later in life when things are a little bit less complicated. No, today is the day, says God. If you hear my voice, do not harden your heart for look at what happened to Israel. This isn't salvation by obedience. We are saved by Christ's blood alone, friends. It is Jesus who gives us soft hearts that can obey him. But it is to say that those who are saved by Jesus will be the ones who do not harden their hearts, but obey God from the heart. That's the right way to read the Bible, isn't it? It is to not harden our hearts, but to come to God in joyful praise, trusting him and doing the things that he says repenting of sin, living differently to how we have been living, rather than simply doing the things that we wanted to do anyway. But in today's New Testament reading, notice that the writer of Hebrews introduces one new element, which is the role that we all have as the people of God to help one another to not harden our hearts. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, after quoting from Psalm 95, says this in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is, indeed, deceitful, isn't it? Sin will say to us, you don't have to take God's word seriously. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, if you remember. Sin will say, yesterday's obedience is enough. Sin will say to us, you don't need to repent of things that you know are wrong in God's eyes because there won't be consequences. You can get around to obeying God tomorrow. But what God says is not only that today is the day to not harden our hearts against God and to humbly obey His word, but that we all have a role to play in encouraging one another so that we will not together in our hearts against God.
exhort one another in the home not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another in your growth groups and in the church family to not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today because there is nothing more urgent and important in your life and my life than to hear God's voice and to respond rightly to Him. There are so many things that are urgent at the moment, isn't there? As we struggle in this time of COVID. So urgent to buy a rapid antigen test kit. So urgent to do this and that. They're all good things that need to be done. But do not be deceived. The most important and urgent thing that we need to be doing is to be listening to God's voice and to be obeying Him joyfully, trusting that He will take us to the promised land. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a great God and a great King above all gods. How astonishing it is that a God like You would set Your love on sinners like us and bring us into a personal relationship with you through the blood of your Son shed on the cross for us. And Father, please forgive us for so often living joyful, uh, joyless and thankless lives. Please forgive us for the times when we have counted knowing you through your word, not as a joyful wonder, but a dry and arid thing. Now please help us to come into your presence with great joy and wonder and thanksgiving. Help us to do this afresh today for all that you have done for us. Father, we pray that our worship of you might not simply be external, but that you will change our hearts so that we might be people who delight in listening to your voice and obeying your word daily. Now please help us not to put off reading and listening to your word, but to help us to put these things into practice today and every day that we hear your word, knowing that through your word you are bringing us home into your eternal rest. For we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name.